Good morning. It's so good to have each of you worshiping here with us, whether in the sanctuary or streaming from your home. Welcome. Please stand and join me in the call to worship, which is printed in your bulletin. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Eternal God, in whom we live and move and have our being, we praise you for your merciful keeping and gracious care, for all the gifts of your love that you show us daily. Open our eyes so we may see your gracious hand at work in our lives. Open our ears so we may hear your whispers of love to us. Soften our hearts that we may receive your truth Reveal yourself to us here today so we may go forth in your truth, your love, and your strength. This we pray in your name. Amen.
morning and welcome to the service of worship. Take a moment and uh, share a word of greeting and word of welcome to others who are here in worship today. Just want to give a word of instruction or information about the insert that you have. Last semester in November, we had our first Sunday lunch, a special effort to welcome our college students and community to our church, get better acquainted, uh, be involved in our lives together. So once again, we're doing this next Sunday, and we don't want anyone left out. We want you to be part of this. Some have already signed up. You don't need to do it again. But if you will bring a, a meal, a large dish, and as instructed here, and plan to come, please check this off and make sure it's in the offering uh, plate later. And then uh, if you're a college student and plan to come, you, you're the ones that are invited and you don't have to bring food. We'll, we'll supply it for you. This whole purpose, of course, is so that we have enough chairs and enough food for everybody. So if you'll just uh, take a chance to fill that out and put it in the offering. We certainly are glad for each one that's here. Well, thank everyone for your uh, prayers and cards and acts of kindness during my illness. I'm feeling much better, and I appreciate all of your support. Thank you to, to Pastor Paul and others who uh, filled in, did extra things uh, during that time. And uh, it's just wonderful to have such a great staff and a, and a congregation, and appreciate that. One of the things that I uh, missed doing last week because I was gone was introducing to you our new intern for this semester, Welcome on up. Uh, Will Bruno is a senior at the college, and he's going to be serving uh, in our church this semester as an intern. We're excited about that. Uh, I've known Will pretty much most of his time here at Houghton for some classes that I taught, and uh, looking forward to him. I hope you have a chance to interact with him uh, and uh, get to know him. And I asked him to share just a word or two this morning in greeting. Good morning. Uh, thank you, everyone, so much for those of you who have gotten a chance to meet. I'm already feeling... Uh, Quite welcome here and uh, working with this incredible staff, so it's a great privilege um, to be with you this semester as an intern. I look forward to meeting more of you, hopefully in the weeks to come, and thank you so much.
The Old Testament scripture reading is Leviticus 19, verses 1 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any of it is eaten on the third day, It is impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because they have desecrated what is holy to the Lord. They must be cut off from their people. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name or so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the word of God. Please stand for the doxology as the ushers come forward to assist us in the giving of the tithes and offerings. Accept these gifts, O God, that they may be used according to your will to redeem, restore, and renew the ministries within your kingdom. Amen. You may be seated.
Please join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let's pray together. Merciful God, in your gracious presence, we confess our sin and the sin of this world. Although Christ is among us as our peace, we are a people divided against ourselves as we cling to the values of a broken world. The profit and pleasures we pursue far too often lay waste the land and pollute the seas. The fears and jealousies that we harbor set neighbor against neighbor, nation against nation, even disciple against disciple. We abuse your good gifts of imagination and freedom, of intellect and reason, and have turned them into bonds of oppression. Lord, have mercy upon us. Heal and forgive us through the promise of Christ. In his name, set us free to serve you in the world as agents of your reconciling love in Jesus Christ. Amen. We have the great privilege of joining together in prayer. And sometimes the posture in which we pray expresses uh, the prayers of our hearts. And so this morning, as we pray together, if you would like to stand where you pray, remain seated, kneel where you are, or come to the altar and kneel, you're invited uh, to, uh, to express the posture, let, you, let your posture express prayer and the desires of your heart as we pray together. Father, we come to this moment of prayer because we know that we need you. Because we know that you alone are the answer to the burdens we bring. Because you are perfectly good, perfectly holy, perfectly powerful to answer our prayers in the way that you know us best. We pray today for all who are grieved, all who grieve. Grief comes to us in this world in a variety of ways, and it often lingers in our hearts and our souls. We pray that you will bring comfort to all who are grieving today. We pray for all who are struggling with illness, the pain that comes from the bodies that are bodies that are broken and hurting and struggling. We pray especially today for Storer Emmett and King. Mildred Berry, Doris Esepian, and Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Laurel Buecher, Bill Getty, Warren and Ella Woolsey, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck, Everett, Micah Christensen, Belinda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Cricklar, and others who are on our hearts and our minds today. We ask for your healing grace upon each of them. We pray for our local institutions places of learning that are all around us, and we thank you for each one of them. Thank you for the ways in which our lives are enriched through them, and those of our families and those that we love. We pray your continued blessing upon each institution, 
We ask that you would help us to learn and to grow and to serve. We pray for the churches in our county and around us. And today we pray for the Riverside Assembly of God in Wellsville, Pastor Francisco. We're out here anointing upon each of them today, their congregation. May they be joined and bonded together in your love and mercy as they bear, bear witness to you in Wellsville and beyond. We pray today for your work around the world. Thank you for people like Steve and Margie Doty who have dedicated years of their lives to serving you and specifically to translating the scriptures. As they continue to work on, on more and more translation projects and partnering with others, may your anointing be upon them. And through their work, more and more people will have the scriptures in their heart language and understand you even more clearly. We pray for our brothers and sisters who worship today, knowing that they're putting their livelihood and even their lives in jeopardy. Think of Pastor Yang and the Living Stone Church, who recently was tried, secretly sentenced to two and a half years in prison. This church that he is pastoring has grown significantly over the last few years. We pray, Father, that you will, you will bring an end to this sentence and that you will give grace to this church that rather than wilting back, they will continue to grow in you because they see you at work. Father, we pray for the people in our world who are most vulnerable. Think of those who are refugees. Think of those who are struggling with recent disasters and terrorist attacks. On this Sunday, when we think about the sanctity of human life and the gift of human life you've given us, fill our hearts with love and compassion for all human beings. We ask, Father, that you will help us and your church to be a catalyst for helping the world, all people, to see the value of every human life. Lord, we pray for our nation. On this inauguration weekend, we pray for President Trump and his staff. This election has been very divisive in our nation, perhaps in our church. Some are celebrating this weekend, some are grieving. Father, help us to remember that our lives are first and foremost about you. You are our only hope. We trust you. Whatever side we may be on, help us to commit ourselves to pray for our president that you have commanded us. That his heart will be open to you. That he will lead in a way and work in a way for policies that give hope to the hopeless and help to the most vulnerable in our nation and in our world. Father, thank you for all of your blessings. Give us a deeper appreciation for who you are and what you do, so much so that we continue to seek you and to be filled with your Spirit. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, one who was crucified for our sins and rose in victory and has promised to return, usher in the kingdom the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together.
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. together, walking in the Spirit, there's much to be done, we will come reaching out from our comforts, and they will know us by our love, sisters, we were made for kindness, we can pierce the dark. As he shines through us, we will come reaching with a song of Our New Testament scripture reading is from Matthew 5, verses 17 through 48. After the reading of the scripture, children ages 2 through 5 are dismissed for children's church. Following the tradition of the church, if you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Reku is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a a certificate of divorce But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. 
Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated.
I suspect that most of us have, at least to some degree, a negative perspective of obedience. It is something that we are encouraged to do, maybe forced to do, have to be trained to do. I mean, we send our pets to obedience school. They have a whole school for obedience. Why is that? Because it just doesn't come naturally to us. We have a tendency in our broken, human, sinful spirits to rebel against obedience. And so when we hear, uh, when we hear someone talking about rules, we're thinking about um, excuses. When people start talking about making commitments, right behind that comes um, you know, things like, um, how far do I have to go? How can I, how can I find a, a little bit of a way around this? And we start talking about laws, and the first thing we're doing is looking for loopholes, right? I mean, is that the basis for the whole IRS tax code? That, you know, people keep looking for loopholes, and so they keep creating more laws to try to cover up the loopholes, and people keep finding more loopholes. And that's why it takes us, you know, how many weeks and months to do our taxes. And we have to pay people to do this. When it ought to be, hey, just give us this much money and we'll be good. It just doesn't work that way because we have a hard time with just straightforward obedience. There's something rebellious in us. And we see that through the history of God's people. We're not limited to that. Go back to the Old Testament. God gives to them a law. You would think God would be able to say to them, here are ten things you ought to know. This should pretty much cover it. You should be good with this. Ten things. That's all you got to do. But as soon as they see those ten things, it's, yeah, but what about this? What about that? What about that? What about that? And do we have to do this? And so God creates, has to create this much bigger law. And, and the whole Old Testament of the prophets and the Word teaching us to understand what it means to obey God. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he talks about obedience a lot. And he says to his followers, obey me. Obey the Father. Obedience is huge for citizens of the kingdom. And as Jesus begins his ministry, as Matthew records it here and he, and he begins and he teaches this sermon that in many ways is a summary of everything that Jesus comes to tell us and to help us know. He talks about obedience. We read a long passage this morning. A lot of stuff in there. And I suspect if you're like me, you're reading through that going, whoa, what does that mean? What is that about? We're we supposed to do that, really? And, and people write books about sections of what we read this morning, not even the whole thing. There's no way we can get into all the details of what Jesus says here. And I want to really think more of an overview. But I want to walk us through these six examples that Jesus gives us real quickly about what it means to obey, what obedience looks like for citizens of the kingdom of God. He starts by talking about murder. He says, you've heard it said that thou shalt not murder. And I suspect most everyone in his audience, and I would suspect a pretty high percentage of our audience, would say, yeah, that's a bad thing. But Jesus says that's not enough. I'm not just concerned about you murdering people. I'm concerned about hatred in your heart for people. Bitterness. That if push came to shove and you thought you could get away with it, you might actually take someone's life. You have such animosity, such bitterness, such anger. And the problem with that is not just about this circumstance that this person hurt me. When bitterness and takes root in us, 
it affects every single relationship in our lives. It's like it gets into our bloodstream and we begin to to express anger and bitterness. It comes out in every relationship we have, including our relationship with God. Jesus says obedience is not just the act of taking someone's life. It's that anger, bitterness, hatred that can seep into us. Then he talks about adultery, and he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And again, I'm assuming their audience and our audience would say, yeah, that's a bad thing. But he says it's, it's more than that. It's not just that particular physical act. It is the heart. It's, our, it's our, what's going on in our hearts that often leads to that. And he says it's, it's not just that act, but it's lustful, it's lustful thoughts. It's, it's focusing on someone in such a way that we objectify them to gratify our own desires. People are no longer people. We dehumanize people. That's, the, that's one, of the, one of the great problems of this issue of lust. We dehumanize people in such a way that we think we can use them, manipulate them, do whatever we want to gratify ourselves because they aren't really human. And that too gets into our bloodstream. And we start seeing every person, every relationship as, how can I get them to do what I want them to do? How can I manipulate them and use them? And again, we do that with God too. God does not become the the, the being who loves us. He becomes the being that we try to manipulate to get what we want. And, and And it feeds our whole life. Then he moves to to probably the most controversial thing he says here, and that is divorce. It's always been a problem for, for the world, even going all the way back to Israel, because this idea of a certificate of divorce is something that goes back to Moses. Their marriages were, were in trouble, and, and there were terrible things happening in their marriages. And so God says to Moses, there are maybe lesser evils than letting that continue. So I'm going to allow people to, have a, to, to do a certificate of divorce. And that was interpreted after, after a period of time as God doesn't mind, he doesn't care if we get divorced or not. And so you have rabbis on two sides of this issue in Jesus' day. One rabbi and the school of thought was that you can divorce a man. Of course, all the powers with the men. Women had no rights here. Women had no rights to, to initiate divorce, only men. And men could divorce their wives for anything. Not just unfaithfulness, but if, if, if they... There, there are stories of rabbis saying, if they burn your supper, you can divorce them. They put too much salt in your food, you can divorce them. Then buy the right brand of celery, you can divorce them. It doesn't really make any difference. If, you, if they don't satisfy whatever need you have, if they disappoint you or discourage you, you can divorce them. And the underlying idea is God doesn't really care. Then you had the other side of it, the rabbi saying there's absolutely never, ever, ever is divorce allowed. Period. And Jesus is, they're asking Jesus, so which is right? And Jesus, as he normally does, says, well, neither. Because both of them are approaching this from the wrong perspective. Both of, in both perspectives, the only person they're thinking about is the, is the male. 
Well, how much can the male do? How little can the male do? And Jesus is saying, while that's important, I'm really concerned about the victims here. Because what you're doing to the women you divorce is creating a shameful lifestyle for them. They have no way to support themselves. They have no way to support their children without entering into behavior that is even more shameful than they've already been through. You put them in a terrible position. And why is that? Because you don't really care about them. Just think about yourself. What you want to do. He's saying, God does not take this lightly. Yes, there are times when when divorce is the the lesser, lesser of the two evils. But it's always as a last resort. It is always as as a heart-wrenching decision. And we recognize, as God does, and and you know, if you have any connection to divorce at all, how painful it is for every single person. And Jesus is saying, God doesn't take this lightly, and neither should you as citizens of the kingdom. He moves on to talk about oaths. And their perspective was that as long as you swore on the right things, then you could say whatever you wanted to say. And Jesus says, why do you need these oaths? Why do you need to swear on anything? Because your word doesn't mean anything. You know, when we were kids, we'd say things to friends. I remember, you know, you say to friends, man, you don't believe what I just saw. And you tell them what they saw, and they say to you, oh, I don't believe that. No way. And you say to them, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And that's what we used to say. I don't know about you guys, but that's what we would say. However grotesque that was, what we were saying is, no, I'm telling the truth. It was a, it was a you know, a, a little, uh, a little safer way of really swearing, we're telling the truth. And you hear, I, I know we all hear it, people swearing on various things. I swear on my mother's grave, I swear on, swear on this, I swear on that. Why do we feel the need to do that? Because we're not really sure people believe us. And Jesus says, as citizens of the kingdom, your word is important. You don't need to swear about things. Just say yes and do it. Or say no and don't do it. But don't mess around with all this stuff and give people the impression and give people the sense that as king, citizen kingdoms, as kingdom citizens, our word really doesn't mean anything. You see, the problem with that is it reflects on God. Because our poor reputation about our word as representatives of God tells people God can't be trusted either. Your yes be yes, your no be no. However painful that may be sometimes. And then he talks about retaliation. Takes us back to a passage in Exodus and a few other places where, again, God made some concessions for the culture in which they lived. In the, in the ancient culture, if you put out my eye, I'll take your life. You break my tooth, I'll, take, I'll put out your eye, or worse. And, and God says this, this whole thing of, of upping the ante of retaliation has got to stop. And so he says to Israel, the, the most you can do is what was done to you. That's the ceiling. That's the limit. And really, a lot of what he's talking about in that particular setting is in a court of law. So if someone is convicted of this injury, that's the injury they can receive and no more. But it also became a part of just how they related to each other. And Jesus says, how about we try something different? Let's forgive each other. 
let's let's stop this, you know. Let, let, let's try something else. Instead of this cycle of violence that keeps going and, and escalating, how about if we throw a wrench in that? Charles Campbell says that he envisions this, 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 uh, this scene where a Roman soldier and sold, Roman soldiers could, could ask citizens to carry their stuff. And they would care, make them carry it everywhere as long as they wanted. And so it became a real problem. So the government said, you can only ask people to carry your stuff one mile. That's it. So he imagines this scene where a Roman soldier asks this Christian man to carry his stuff. And the guy says, okay, sure. So he picks up his stuff and he carries it a mile. And when he gets into the mile, the soldier says, okay, that's it. You can put it down now. And he says, no, I don't mind. I'll carry it some more if you want. He says, no, you're, you're not allowed to. It's against the law. He says, well, I know that, but that's okay. I don't mind carrying it. I'll carry it another mile for you. And he says, what are you trying to do to me here? I can get flogged or fined if people hear about this. What are you trying to do? You're messing with the way things work. And the guy says, maybe, but I don't mind carrying it. It's okay. I think Jesus is saying that's the kind of thing we want to do. We throw a wrench in the way the the world operates, especially in the sense of retaliation. We see it all the time. You do that to me, I do a little bit more to you. And you do a little bit more to me, and I do a little bit more to you. And pretty soon, it's escalated totally out of control. And Jesus says... We try forgiving each other and stopping it. And that relates to what he says in the sixth example. And he says, you know, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now you need to understand that what what Jesus is addressing here is not specifically scripture. Nowhere, he doesn't say, the scripture says this, and I'm telling you this. He's saying, you've heard it said, or another way of interpreting that is, you've been taught. This is how you perceive, how you interpret scripture. Because quite frankly, no place in scripture does God say you are to hate your enemy. That's a perception that the Israelites and others make. And Jesus says, you may think that's what Scripture says, but that's not what it says. What Scripture says, as we saw in Leviticus 19, is you love your neighbor and you love your enemy. And that's a radical concept. The people who have hurt you, the people who have rejected you, the people who have rejected God and offend you, you love them. We don't respond to hate with hate. We respond to hate with love. And Jesus says, look, anybody can love people who love them. I mean, that's like way baseline kind of living. The tax collectors, as he looks at them, I can see him looking at them saying, the tax collectors that you despise, they do that. The pagans that you hate, they do that. As citizens of the kingdom, the bar is just a little bit higher than that. We live a different kind of life. Now, what I find happens when you read, when, you, when people think through these examples that Jesus gives, is that what we sense Jesus saying is obedience means Jesus just creates stricter rules. He just, he just made the rules that much harder. That's not what he's doing at all. What he's saying is, 
Obedience is not about a checklist. Obedience is not about duty to rules. Because that always leads us to self-centeredness. A checklist is always going to lead us to say, as long as I feel good about myself, that's all that matters. This is really the heart of the discussion Jesus has with the Pharisees about what you can can and can't do on the Sabbath. Because for them, Jesus' healing on the Sabbath is breaking the rule. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Human beings weren't made for the rule. The rule was made for human beings. And that means the rule isn't the, isn't the end of it. It's that the rule leads us to live the kind of life that cares about people. That's the spirit of openness to God. He's not saying, look, I've just upped the ante on the strictness of the rules, and now you thought you couldn't do it before. Now you really can't do it. He's saying, I want you to live in a spirit of openness to God. And don't worry about the checklist. Just live in a spirit of openness to God, about your attitude and your passions and your desires and, your, and, and, and what drives you. That's what God wants to get at. Not the checklist. Anybody can put check can check off stuff on the list. It doesn't even take much thinking to do a checklist. But openness to God, that's a whole other thing. That's a spirit that says, Lord, if I don't have you, I'll never be able to make it. I can't be the kind of citizen of the kingdom that I know you've called me to be without you. So give me that spirit of openness to you that lets me, allows me to follow you however the zigzagging course is that you may lead me. I want to live in that kind of openness to you. And the openness to God, I guarantee you, openness to God always leads us to think more about people than about rules. Always. More about people than rules. I think that's what Jesus means when he says that he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. Jesus is not saying to them, look, you know all the stuff that God gave the Israelites thousands of years ago? He really didn't mean all that. That really wasn't, that, that, that was a big mistake. We realize that now. So let's forget all of that and let's start all over again. He's saying, if you really understood the intent of what God meant for that law, then what it would look like is standing right in front of you. I have fulfilled the law. Uh, Jesus is the only person who really grasped and lived out what God intended for the law to be from the very beginning. He says, if you want to know what it means to obey God, this is what it looks like. And when you look at the life of Jesus, it's never about rules. It's about obedience. It's never about being stricter. It's about being open to God. It's never about minimizing the behavior. And it's never about what's the least I can do and still be a citizen of the kingdom. 
I don't think there's any place in Scripture where God says, all right, let's talk about the least you have to do. I, I don't see it anywhere. What he says is, how in my kingdom, what you want, what you desire, what you're yearning for, is how much can I do? I'm so grateful to God for all that he has done for me and for us, for his people, for this world. I can't stop giving of myself. I mean, I think that's true of how we maybe wrestle with that when it comes to what we do with our resources, our money, our time, our talent. God tells the Israelites the minimum amount is 10%, the tithe. And every follower of God, to be obedient to the minimum amount, gives to God's kingdom 10%. But you'll notice, even in the passage we read earlier, what does God tell the Israelites? Don't lean to the edges of your field. In other words, 10% is, is fine as a baseline, but you want to be thinking all of your life, how can I keep giving more? How can I keep doing more for people who don't have much of anything? And when you come to the New Testament, Paul says, yeah, the tithe is the baseline, but what God really wants is people who are generous. We're always thinking, not how little can I give and still be a citizen, but how much can I give because I'm a citizen? It's never about how little we can do. What's the least we can do? So Jesus says, what I'm looking for in terms of righteousness, holiness, obedience, it's got to be more than what you see happening with the Pharisees and teachers of the law because all they're thinking about is what's the least I have to do? And in the kingdom of heaven, it's not enough. It's not the mindset you want. It's not this mindset of miserliness about our lives. It's a mindset of generosity about our lives because of who God is and what God has done for us. It comes back to the want to in our hearts. I think really in many ways, summarizing this passage, it's it's about the want to. What's our passion? What's our desire? What do we love? And how do we express that? A number of years ago, I saw a movie entitled The Breakup. It's a really depressing movie. Uh, to be honest with you, I would not recommend it to you. Uh, it's one of those movies you're thinking at the end, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come up, but it doesn't. It just keeps nosediving all the way to the end. But there is a scene in the movie that I thought was pretty interesting. Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn are the stars of this movie. And they are this, this couple, and they're starting to have difficulties and one night they have some friends over for dinner and she spends, you know, half the afternoon fixing this meal. And uh, when they leave later that night, it's late, and she sees him through the door, she closes it, locks it, comes in, and he's lying on the couch playing a video game. And she said, you know, she's just dog tired. She says, okay, I'm going to go do the dishes. He's okay, babe, that's great. He's lying here on the couch. And she stands there and says, um, it'd be nice if you help me. He says, oh, you know, I'm just so tired. Uh, I'm just going to lay back here. I just really put my feet up and relax here a little bit. And she says, well, I'm tired too. So I really could use your help with the dishes. You have 15 minutes. We have it done. He said, you know what? Okay, I'll help you, but let's do it in the morning. I'm just so tired tonight. We'll do it in the morning. She says, I don't want to do it in the morning. And he says, who cares whether you do it tonight or in the morning? She says, I care. I don't want to wake up to all those dishes in the sink. 
she keeps telling him, I, I want you to help me with the dishes. I want you to help me with the dishes. And finally, he's badgered enough. He throws down his controller and says, fine, I'll help you with the dishes. And he gets up and she says, no, no, no. I don't want you to help me with the dishes. And now he's really confused. He said, you just said you want me to help you with the dishes. And she said, no. I don't want you to help me with the dishes. I want you to want to help me with the dishes. And I kind of think there is something of that in what Jesus is describing. It's not just that we do it and we whine and we complain and what's the least I have to do. No, there's this mindset of we love God. We have, our lives have been transformed by His grace. And when you experience that and you begin to live in that, you can't just think, what's the least I have to do? It, it, it's a life of gratitude and generosity and, and a, the changing of our hearts. To not just say, well, I didn't do those things, so I'm good. No, do we care about people? What's going on in our attitudes? What's going on in our minds? What's the want to of our lives? And so Jesus comes to the end of this and he says, this profoundly difficult statement to grasp, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I cannot think of a, of a verse in scripture more discouraging than that one. Right? It's not a hint. He's not just saying, boy, it sure would be nice if you were perfect like your Father. No, he says, be perfect like your heavenly Father. How? Really? Seriously? How is that possible? Well, I think part of our issue with that, and people have had issues with it through the centuries, is that we, how we interpret perfect. Most of us, perfect means we don't make any mistakes. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, because that's impossible. The word he uses here has this sense of, of completion, fulfillment wholeness. I think he's talking about the mindset that we approach things in life as citizens of the kingdom. That, that the passion of our heart, however often we don't actually live it out, but the passion of our heart is we want, we want to be like Jesus. We want to look like our Father. And it makes me think of, this is going to aid, you know, tell my my uh, age a bit, but it reminds me of the song that was popular when I was in college by Amy Grant. I may not be every mother's dream for her little girl. And my face may not grace the minds of everyone in the world, but that's all right. As long as I can have one wish, I pray. When people look inside my life, I want to hear them say, He's got His Father's eyes. His Father's eyes. We see things the way God does. We feel things the way God feels them. Passions are God's passions. And it's not because we just worked ourselves up more and more, not because we, we just created more of a strict rule system. It's because we are living in more and more openness to the Spirit. And obedience isn't something we lament and whine about. It's something we see as a blessing. A gift. 
Jesus begins this sermon by saying, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And I think often we see the Beatitudes as a section, kind of off by itself, and then we move on to the next thing. But I think the Beatitudes are the introduction to all the rest of the sermon, and quite frankly, probably all the rest of the Gospels and the New Testament. And I think Jesus is saying to us, you want to live a blessed life? Obey God like this. Give God control of your life. Let go of that. And instead of spending our time trying to prove to people how awesome we are, instead of spending our time trying to make sure we're following the rules, instead of spending our time trying to validate who we are and what we're doing and and all the ways in which we live our lives doing that, instead of spending all that time and energy, which quite frankly is exhausting to do that, Instead of being in that bondage, we live in the freedom of opening our lives to Christ and loving other people and letting God lead us where He wants to go. It doesn't mean it's an easy life. In fact, it's the most challenging life possible because it's about vulnerability and selflessness and sacrifice and love and compassion is the blessed life because it keeps moving us closer and closer to our Creator. He loves us. I think in our contemporary world, maybe the person that exemplified that the most is Mother Teresa. I'm sure there are lots of other people. She lived a hard life. She gave herself to people who could give absolutely nothing back to her. And she, she entered that world not because she had a dream and a passion, because she had all kinds of other ideas for how she was going to spend her life, but because that was the word of God to her. And she didn't do it to get accolades. In fact, we'd never even know she'd done anything if people hadn't gone over to visit and been so astounded they started writing books about it. But she lived in a spirit of openness to God that led her to love people nobody else loved. And to care for people no one else cared for. And was quite willing to do it in obscurity. tell us, despite all the ups and downs and the struggles that she had, that God blessed her. And she was free from having to prove herself or validate herself. Free to just surrender to Christ. And that's God's call to us. Obviously, I don't know what might be the sticking point for you when you think about obedience? But we all have them. We all have them. And the choice before us is not, are we going to obey or not? The choice before us really is, do we want to live in bondage or freedom?
Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the invitation to freedom. Give us grace, set us free. To live in obedience as citizens of your kingdom. Through Christ Jesus and the power of the Spirit. the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.